Okay, so do we want to do the quiz today? No, we don't. We want to wait for... Well, who's missing now? Uh, we have one Steve, one Ben. Um, and we're missing one Steve and one Ben. Do you want to do the quiz today or do you want to wait till tomorrow? You really want to wait till tomorrow. You want to wait till, till, for tomorrow so much that it hurts. Okay, remember we're also... We have um, um, still to do... We're not, I guess we're not officially doing Aripagetica, um, which is too bad. But I think you read a fair amount in this class. Um, but we still have to do Samson in Paradise Regained. Um, and we have um, three classes after today, plus an optional makeup, which we'll have to figure out a time for. Um, but basically, I think what we'll do is we'll do what we can with Paradise Lost today. And tomorrow, tomorrow there'll be a quiz on Paradise Lost. Um, you should read the first two books of Paradise. How many people started Paradise Regained? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Um, and by that, you mean that you noticed that um, the word disobedience um, appears in line two of Paradise Regained as it appeared in line one of Paradise Lost. That's good. Um, uh, okay, so read the first two books of Paradise Regained for tomorrow. Um, and we will, one way or another, by hook or by crook, we'll finish um, with Paradise Lost and uh, start Paradise Regained for tomorrow. Do Paradise Regained, finish Paradise Regained on Monday, and do Samson on Tuesday. Um, not that much reading. Compared to Spencer, it's nothing. Um, compared to Spencer, it's like less than nothing. Um, so, and then, then you'll have read a lot of Major Milton will be good. Well, you've already read a lot of Major Milton. Okay, so are we all done with Paradise Lost, though, even though we're not ready for our quiz on it because we want to review certain things? Um, would that be fair to say? Uh, was that why your break was only so-so, because you were reading Paradise Lost? No. Was it because you weren't reading Paradise Lost? <laughs> no. That'll ruin anyone's break, not reading <laughs> Paradise Lost. Um, okay, let us go to um, book seven and to the invocation of Book 7. Um, and um, this is the conversation between Raphael, the affable archangel, and Adam. Um, and uh, what we had in Books 5 and 6 was um, an account of the war in heaven between uh, the rebel angels and the loyal angels. And now in book seven, um, we get to the second half of the poem. And so um, the symmetry of, I mentioned this before, but I'll, I'll remind you of it. The symmetry of books one and um, three in the first half of the poem and books seven and nine in the second half of the poem, that is um, the first and third book of the first half of the poem and the first and third book of the second half of the poem um, have have, inv have what are clearly invocations. Um, that is uh, not, um, if, if the invocation of book four is not so clearly an invocation, there certainly is a symmetry um, between book one and book seven and then book three and book nine. Um, so book seven is an invocation to begin the second half of Paradise Lost, and the invocation is straight to Urania, to the muse Urania, who is the muse of what? Does anyone know? Yes? Astrology. Well, astronomy. Astronomy. Yes. Um, the muse of the heavens. Um, the muse who talks about the heavens. So descend from heaven, 
Urania, he asks. Descend from heaven, Urania. By that name, if rightly thou art called. Um, so if it's right to call you Urania, let me call you Urania. By that name, if rightly thou art called, whose voice divine following above the Olympian hill I soar above the flight of Pegasian wing. So I followed your voice and I soared above the Olympian hill, that is to say, above the place where the Greek gods lived. Um, I went higher than that. I went to the real heaven, the Christian heaven, way above Mount Olympus, way above the flight of Pegasus the immortal mythological horse. The meaning, but I don't know, therefore, whether it's right to give you this Greek name, the name of a Greek muse, the meaning, not the name I call. And here again, what that you should compare that to is what we said about the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world in the invocation to book one. The idea, again, in Milton is that what matters is meaning and not the external label. What matters is the meaning of what you do. So to call upon the muse here turns out to call upon a meaning and to the very, call upon the very possibility of meaning. The meaning, not the name I call, for thou nor of the muses nine, nor on the top of old Olympus dwellst. That's why she leads him above Mount Olympus. But heavenly born, before the hills appeared or fountain flowed, thou with eternal wisdom didst converse, wisdom thy sister, and with her didst play in presence of the Almighty Father, pleased with thy celestial song. So she was born in heaven, she existed from time immemorial, and she was the meaning that pleased God, whose song, whose existence as song pleased God. Up led by thee into the heaven of heavens, I have presumed. So notice the ten tentativeness of that word, presumed. I've been led up to the heaven of heavens by you. I've seen and spoken of. I've seen things invisible to mortal sight and spoken of them because you have led me into the heaven of heavens and I've presumed to enter there knowing that it's not my place. Remember what Satan has said about Adam and Eve the first time he saw them. He says that they are earthborn, perhaps, but yet to heavenly spirits, little inferior. But they are earthborn. And now we find out that Urania is heavenly born and has led the earthborn Milton to a glimpse of the heaven of heavens. But now that's not a place for him. Up led by thee into the heaven of heavens, I have presumed an earthly guest. So he's a guest from earth who's gone to the heaven of heavens. Who is he the converse of? Well, the sun who comes down to earth, but the sun becomes earthly. The sun, in fact, is earthborn, as you'll see in Paradise Regained. 
Um, who in Paradise Lost is he explicitly the converse of? Sorry? Raphael. Raphael. Yeah, the heavenly guest on earth. He has been like an earthly guest in heaven. Upled by thee into the heaven of heavens, I have presumed an earthly guest and drawn imperial air by tempering. You've made it possible for me to breathe this utterly rarefied air. You've tempered it to my human lungs or to my human voice. That is, you inspiration means literally to inhale to or to cause someone to inhale to breathe into them so she has inspired him with imperial air I have drawn imperial air thy tempering with like safety guided down so help me down now with like safety guided down return me to my native element so where does he want to be home, earth, yeah return me to where I want to be those of you who may remember Birch's, the Robert Frost poem I don't know whether you would or not um, those of you who may remember that poem may remember um, Frost's version of this, earth's the right place for love, I don't know any place it's likely to go better he doesn't want to go to heaven he wants to swing Birch's back to earth he's thinking of this moment in Paradise Lost. With like safety guided down, return me to my native element, lest from this flying steed unreined, as once Bellerophon, though from a lower climb, Bellerophon rode Pegasus, lest from this flying steed unreined, as once Bellerophon, though from a lower climb, dismounted on the Elean field, I fall erroneous there to wander and forlorn. So lest what lest I be um, uh, knocked off the steed of heaven, the, 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 the steed that I am riding up into the heaven of heavens so that I fall like Bellerophon into this desert field and just wander not knowing where I am. That's not what I want, so please guide me down safely to earth because that's what the second half of the poem is going to be about half yet remains unsung so the first half of the poem was first about hell and then about heaven and then even the part that occurred on earth was the story of what happened in heaven so the first six books of paradise lost are the non-earth books the second six books, with one very small exception, or two very small exceptions, are what happens entirely on Earth. Half yet remains unsung, the second half, but narrower bound within the visible diurnal sphere, that is, within the visible world. He who had, seen, who had wanted to see things invisible to mortal sight is now returned to the world that we all share, the world that is visible to human beings. Not things invisible to mortal sight, but things visible to mortal sight, despite the fact that he's, he's blind. Standing on earth, not wrapped above the pole, more safe I sing with mortal voice. So 
here he is with like safety guided down, bring me to a place where I can sing safely with mortal voice. So now he is singing with the voice of a mortal. And that's a crucial thing to see. Um, Epicurus said that gods cannot be gods, and for Milton that would be God, um, with an exception that we'll come to, but the gods cannot show the same virtues that humans can show because the gods do not have to cope with either mortality or pain. And therefore, they are, it, it is impossible for them to know and to demonstrate what it's like to, um, to accept, to tolerate, to deal with mortality and pain. Now we are getting Milton talking about mortal things for the second half of Paradise Lost, talking about things that belong only to the realm of mortality, not to the realm of immortality. Adam and Eve are still immortal. That is, still have, are still potentially immortal. They don't know what death is, but we do. And so again, the invocation of book one begins in the description of the fruit whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. So that whole question that we belabored but not enough as to whether it's men who are seeing that the ways of God are just or whether it's whether the ways of God to men are just, all of that is really compressed into the idea of our woe, brought death into the world in all our woe, because this is a poem about human experience, ultimately, about something that doesn't belong to God and doesn't belong to the angels and doesn't belong to the rebel angels, but only belongs to humans the woe of mortality, the woe of being mortal. So now, again, he is going to sing with mortal voice. He's going to sing the songs of mortality that the immortals cannot sing. What Urania has to do is guide him down to the place of mortality, not to cause him to rise up in song, but to allow him to return safely, though temporarily, to earth. More safe I sing with mortal voice, unchanged to horse or mute. And although we haven't talked much about this in Milton, we've talked a little bit about it, but we talked much more about this in Spencer. Um, Milton, as poets, one, one clear difference between Milton and Spencer um, if, if, to get a first approximation of how they differ as poets, is that Spencer is an amazingly sensuous poet. That is, the surface beauties of his poems are everywhere. Um, the surface beauty of his poetry is everywhere. Um, the sense of just um, lovely sound and lovely rhyming Whereas Milton, as you know, in the note on the verse of Paradise Lost, is against rhyming, the like, um, the, the, jingle, the, the, the jingling of like endings, of like 
sounds. Um, and Milton, in general, people think of Milton as a cognitive and philosophical poet, whereas Spencer is a poet who just produces, who absolutely produces, not just produces, but absolutely produces um, sensuous beauty in his poetry. Spencer is gorgeous. Um, people don't tend to think of Milton as gorgeous, despite some of the gorgeous speeches that we saw in Comus, for example, um, and also in Lycidas, and also in L'Allegro especially, but in El Penseroso as well. But here, um, you can see some of the extreme subtlety of Milton's versification. Um, and one place to see it is to look at the word mortal there. More safe I sing with mortal voice unchanged to hoarse or mute. And notice how the sounds in mortal are approaching in a way that's called... Um, chiasmatic. That is to say, what the way a chiasmus works, this is a rhetorical trope, and it's something that you will see all the time, but you, didn't, you probably didn't know there's a name for it. The way chiasmus works is it's an ordering of words or of sounds which goes something like A, B, B, A. Not a rhyme scheme, but an ordering of words. So if you say something like um, the um, Hope lost, um, victory lost, lost hope. Um, then what you get is the thing that's lost, the word lost, the word lost repeated, and then the thing that's lost. So it's an ABBA structure. You'll see it all the time. It's rhetorically very powerful, Tennyson. that ABBA. Sorry? Sorry, uh, and Maureen Tennyson used it. What's an example in Tennyson? In, in Memoriam. Yeah, what's an example in Memoriam? <laughs> uh, Remember, I'm not talking about rhyme scheme. Um, the, the whole poem is an ABBA. Yeah, but that's rhyme scheme. Okay. So you're not talking, you're talking about actual... I'm talking oh, about... The, the, okay. Um, I don't have an example off the top of my head, but he, he does do that in addition to rhyme scheme. Yeah, okay. So, you know, love is a stranger... Um, a beggar is love. Something like that. I mean, I'm just making these up out of whole cloth, but they're, um, that, that form is called chiasmus, after, after the Greek letter chi, which is a crisscross letter, um, a little like an X. So here you get that in, in the form of sound. Um, it doesn't have to be words. It can just be sound. So just more tull becomes hoarse or mute. That is the M and T immortal um, gets picked up by the M and T in mute and the or immortal gets picked up by the or in horse so more safe I sing with mortal voice unchanged to horse or mute and what you can see there is just on the level of sound how mortal risks changing into those sounds horse and mute to be mortal is to risk a morphing of that very of the word that describes you into its own meaning, that you become hoarse and mute, which is death for a poet, or a prefiguration of death for a poet. 
being hoarse or mute. More safe I sing with mortal voice, unchanged to hoarse or mute, though fallen on evil days, on evil days, though fallen. So what's the structure of that phrase? Though fallen on evil days, on evil days, though fallen. Yeah, it's, that's, that's the, t- the textbook example of chiasmus in English. Though fallen on evil days, on evil days, though fallen. What's the crucial word in those phrases? Why does he repeat it? Fallen. Yeah, this is a book about the fall, the fall of Satan and then the fall of Adam and Eve. And he too, he's worried about falling like Bellerophon, um, lest from this flying steed unreined as once Bellerophon, though from a lower climb dismounted on the Elean field, I fall. Well, he has fallen, not onto the Elean field, but onto evil days. And he's talking biographically here. That is, he's talking about his political biography. Um, King Charles II has been restored to the throne of England. Milton risked imprisonment and even execution for having been a huge, um, hugely important person in Cromwell's government and for having written the defense of the English people for the execution of Charles's father. Milton was the person who represented England to Europe as having done right to execute Charles I in 1649. He was the major supporter of that view. And now um, Charles II is king, and all the people, many people in Cromwell's government are in serious trouble, and Milton is among them. Um, luckily for him, Andrew Marvell, who is a very great admirer of his and who's a member of parliament, intervened for him. Um, and Milton had no political power after the restoration of Charles II, um, which is one reason that he spent all his time writing poetry. Um, and he had no political power, but he um, did escape with his life and with his house um, and was in a kind of internal politi- political exile. Um, but um, he was to, he was by now out of danger, but th- this is real danger that he's talking about. By the time he writes Paradise Lost, he's no longer in danger, but he was in real danger, um, and in real danger as a matter of principle, in real danger because he rebelled against the duly constituted king of England. And that rebellion seemed to succeed for a while, but then failed. And now he's returned to a situation of danger. All of this is something to keep in mind when thinking of what Milton thinks about Satan, is that Milton was himself a major figure and a major um, spokesperson for a rebellion against someone who claimed to rule through the divine right of kings. Um, Charles himself he actually didn't write this but um, in prison when he was in prison um, a document was written and then published um, supposedly by Charles the first 
in which Charles defended his divine right as the duly anointed deputy of God that no one could legally and lawfully um, rebel against. And he pointed out, or at least this um, work called Icon Basilicae, um, the image of um, the king, um, pointed out that um, the first two letters of Charles as well as the, and in fact, the first three plus the last consonant of Charles um, were very similar to um, the first three plus the last, uh, plus the second to last consonants in Christ. Um, and that was very meaningful. Um, and Milton wrote a vicious rejoinder of this called Iconoclastes, um, because as a Protestant, he was an iconoclast. Um, but Milton was in real trouble once his son became king of England again. That's the restoration that happened in 1660. So now he describes himself on evil days, though fallen, in evil tongues, in darkness, and with dangers compassed round. He is in darkness. He's blind. All that light at the beginning of book three, no. Now it's in darkness and with dangers compassed round and solitude. So that's where he is. And then he says, yet not alone. He's in solitude, yet not alone, while thou visits my slumbers nightly. So notice the dream there. She comes to him nightly, or when morn purples the east at dawn. But he doesn't see the dawn. Remember, his eyes roll in vain and find no dawn, he said in the invocation of book three. Still govern thou my song Urania, and fit audience find, though few. Very famous phrase in Milton, that an audience doesn't matter if he doesn't have a wide readership. What he wants is a readership that will understand Paradise Lost. So fit audience, justifying the ways of God to men, would have to mean justifying the ways of God at least to those who are capable of judging them, the fit audience, though few. But drive far off the barbarous dissonance of Bacchus and his revelers, the race of that wild route that tore the Thracian bard in Rhodope, where woods and rocks had ears to rapture, till the savage clamor drowned both harp and voice, nor could the muse defend her son. So where did we see that reference before? In Lycidas, remember? Orpheus. So he doesn't want to die like Orpheus, that is torn apart by the rabble, the rabble drunk with their new power, the rabble drunk with their own restoration. Keep them far away. Um, this is what happens to poets, is they get murdered if they're on the wrong side of things. But he asks Urania, keep them far away, nor could the muse defend her son. The muse there is Calliope, the mother of Orpheus, and she couldn't defend Orpheus, nor could the muse defend her son. So fail not thou, don't fail me, the way Calliope failed Orpheus. So fail not thou, who thee implores. Why not? For thou art heavenly. She, an empty dream. So 
that for me is one of the most important lines in all of Paradise Lost. She, an empty dream, nor could the muse defend her son, so fail not thou who thee implores, for thou art heavenly, she, an empty dream. The logic of this, the narrative logic, the, explan the narrative explanation here is one in which the reason Calliope could not defend Orpheus was that she was an empty dream. And the feel there is poor Calliope. If only she were more than a dream, she could have, she could have saved him. She could have defended him. But instead, she was helpless because she was a dream. Now, that's not, in reality, that's a self-contradiction. But in the poem, it isn't. In the poem, it's crucial. Because what it means is something like this. If you are an empty dream, as Calliope was, that doesn't mean that you don't exist. That doesn't mean that you don't experience sorrow as Calliope did. She couldn't defend her son. She watched him die. All what it means to be an empty dream is to be helpless against mortality. To be so helpless that you don't exist and yet more important than your non-existence is your helplessness. Deeper then your non-existence is your helplessness. So how do you make sense of that? Well, Milton made sense of it before in Sonnet 23. You call it Sonnet 19 because that's a different edition. Um, in Sonnet 23, Methought I saw my latest spousal saint, remember? But oh, as to embrace me she inclined, I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. Take that last line seriously. I waked, she fled. Not I waked and it turned out she was a dream, but the very fact that I waked caused her to flee. Somehow she could only exist if I stayed asleep. But I wanted her so much that I woke up. Now, I think what Milton is thinking of here is the myth of who and Eurydice? Orpheus and Eurydice. And if you know that story, Ben, what's the story of Orpheus and Eurydice? Um, I can't recall why, but Eurydice is sent to hell. Well, she dies. She's bitten by a snake. Um, of all yeah. things, a snake. A snake, Ben. A snake. Go on. Okay. Um, and Orpheus uh, is rather talented um, musician. A poet, yeah. Poet, okay. Yeah, he's um, the one who, um, a poet, I mean, he plays on the lyre. Yeah. So he's a lyric poet. He's the one who drew a tear down Pluto's iron cheek and made hell grant what love did seek. So go on. <laughs> Why am I done? <laughs> I'm just giving you the Miltonic um, arabesques around the Ovidian story. Um, well, Hades, um, or, yeah, um, Hades says you can 
you can get Urenshi back. Uh, if you lead her out of hell, then you cannot look at her. Mm -hmm. um, she's, she's stuck here. You cannot look back at her. And ultimately, I mean, he, he does look back at her. Yeah, he does a wife of Lot thing. Um, that is, so, um, that is why he could not quite set free his, anyone remember? Half-regained Eurydice. Good, yes. Rhymes will save you every time. The rhyme will save you every oh, no. time. Doesn't, yeah, doesn't Hercules eventually, or no, that's... No, that's, that's Alcestis, Alcestis, which is what he's talking about also in Sonnet 23. Um, but yeah, the idea is, um, and there's, by the way, a fantastically great movie called Black Orpheus. If you ever get a chance to see it, uh, you should. Um, takes place in Mardi Gras in Brazil. It's the Orpheus story um, that takes place during Carnival in Brazil, in uh, made in 1959, I think. Uh, sorry. 56. I think it's the birth of Bossa Nova in that movie. Yeah, but you mean the the the. the genre. Uh, the, well, no, Bossa Nova already existed. It that may was be like the, his climax with that. Yeah, no, no, it, it may be what brought Bossa Nova to the U.S. Um, at any rate, uh, fantastically great movie, um, it, which gets the myth right, uh, gets the myth exactly right. But the idea is um, Orpheus can, can bring Eurydice back to life as long as he doesn't turn around to make sure she's following him. And, of course, he does turn around. Um, just before he leaves hell. He wants to be sure she's there. Of course he does. And um, so what happens? She gives him a stricken look and is pulled back into hell. Um, and that is what Milton is thinking of, although he talks about Alcestis, um, which was the happy ending. He thought, I saw my latest spouse at Saint brought to me like Alcestis from the grave, whom Jove's glad son... Um, whom Joe's great son to her glad husband gave, rescued from death by force, though pale and faint. That's what I thought I saw. But then what happened was she came, I saw her, but oh, she, to embrace me, she inclined. I waked. That is, he's lying down, and he gets up to embrace her. It's an Orphic moment of not letting her do it, but his returning the embrace and trying to approach her and the result is she fled. Again, I've said this before, but it's worth saying, a normal, everyday, ordinary description of that kind of dream event, which everyone has dreamt, um, not that your dead spouse has come to you in a dream, but something really good has been happening, and then as the alarm clock goes off, um, you reach for it, is it disappears in your dream. It's what happens, sorry? Caliban. Caliban. I cried to dream again. I cried to dream again, which he may very well be thinking of. But also Alice in Wonderland. That is, Alice says, you're nothing but a deck of cards. But it's still in the dream that, the, um, that all of the uh, Queen's um, footmen turn into a deck of cards, that everyone in Wonderland turns into a deck of cards. And then she wakes up and sees, oh, it's actually leaves on her face. Um, but it's in the dream that the fleeing and disappearing and popping into nothingness occurs. But not for Milton. Milton reverses that. Not she fled, I waked, and death brought back my night, and, and death, <laughs> and day brought back my night. But I waked, she fled. 
So the waking, he wakes to the fact that she's gone. He wakes up and sees her gone, and sees her going. So she goes when he's awake. That's the Orphic moment. Why? Because she's just a dream. But she's a dream full of fear and horror and grief and sadness because she flees even when the dream is over. She flees back into the dream, into the non-existent realm of dreams. But she experiences the grief of his waking. You should think of source code as I say all this. Yeah. Um, isn't there also a whole uh, blindness that mentioned that line where... Yeah. By, by, Day brought back by night. Right. By, by waking up, it's, he loses his ability to see, which right. he, had, he has in his dream. Has exactly. Exactly. Although he's never seen this... this no, no, no. That's why her face was veiled. Right. Yeah. And, but uh, but they brought back by night. So right. Exactly. Exactly. Ben, were you going to say something? Um... Yeah, so, I mean, do you, you think Milton um, views her as an empty dream, essentially, as opposed to the heavenly figure? Who? Um, his dead wife. Yeah, in the dream. That is to say, it's... it's um, I don't think that Milton um, believes that it was an actual visitation of his dead wife. Otherwise, it would be a happy poem. But, no, I'm, I'm, I, guess, I guess I'm just sort of confused about... I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the context of um, not a heavenly figure, but an empty dream. Just sort of still on a... Okay, look, what's confusing about it, but what's really important, is um, in a way this is where we get Milton, Milton's thinking about allegory, about Milton in his both most and least Spencerian mode. Um, and what I mean by that is this, that um, what the danger of allegory is in Spencer, and we've talked about this a lot, and it is um, a danger that Spencer is thinking through from first to last. What the danger of allegory is, um, is that it encourages a way of seeing others as for you. So remember we talked about allegory as being for oneself. Orgoglio is, to use an example that we use a lot, Orgoglio is for Red Cross. Um, pride is for Red Cross. They don't have independent existences. Despair is for Red Cross. The danger of seeing other figures as allegorical is that you will then believe that Una is for you, or that um, Britomart is for you. That is to say, it makes others into objects and commodities, um, things that exist for you. That's how little kids see the world. Not very little kids, but kids start seeing the world, um, you could say this, at their most amoral stage of, um, of interaction with others. If you, if you buy, which I do, that, there, that there's different stages of moral development um, among children. Um, there is a stage where, um, well, I actually read this in an article about the murder of an old woman, where um, this, this adolescent um, robbed this old woman because he wanted um, 
I don't know what he wanted, some go- some gold ring that she had, and he hit her on the head and killed her. Um, and got the ring, and then he was asked, you know, how could you do that for this little ring? Um, don't you feel terrible? I mean, she died. It was just disgusting. She took her a long time to die. She was in horrible pain. And, and, and they said to her, don't you feel terrible about what, what you made her go through? And he said, why should I feel terrible? She wasn't me. Um... And that is that's some kind of uh, stunted moral growth. That is, there is a stage in life where the pain of others is of no interest to you whatever because you yourself are the only thing that counts. Um, most people grow out of that, and most people probably don't feel that entirely. Um, but there is this, that's what it would mean to be amoral. Um, to be immoral would be to actually want to cause pain. Whereas to be amoral is to be completely indifferent because it's not yours. And in a sense, it's to be an unbeliever, not a disbeliever, which takes energy, but an unbeliever in the reality of others. Others are, um, in the real world, are no realer to you than they would be on a screen or on TV. Um, They're there for you. And that's the danger of allegory, is um, the extent to which despair is turned into a comic figure at the end of the story of despair. That is to say, he's turned into a comic figure who can't die, who despairs over the fact that he can't even kill himself because the rope keeps breaking. Um, And you don't say, oh, poor despair, he's despairing. What you think is, ha ha, he's a clown, he's not real. Uh, To quote Edith Wharton, he's one of those insignificant personages who form the padding of life, which is how we see most people on the street. Um, I think I actually, we actually talked about um, you know those other people on the Mass Pike who are causing you to be stuck in traffic, and how you don't think of them as any of them as for themselves. You only think of them as for you, in, as, as problems for you. Why are these people here making my commute so difficult? Um, and you don't, you don't give them um, sub- subjective reality. Allegory risks that, that you won't give others subjective reality. Um, to talk about someone as a dream is to talk about them in purely allegorical terms. That's what Freud did. That is to say, um, you say something like, um, I dreamt that... Um, I was in love with this woman, um, but um, she was completely uninterested in me because she was really interested in this big giant um, who was who was hanging out with her. Um, and uh, let's say you're a woman dreaming that. Um, so, I, so I, a woman, dreamt that I was in love with this woman, but she was completely uninterested in me. She was interested in this giant who was hanging out with her, and the giant was just so pleased that she loved him. Um, what you wouldn't be doing is thinking to yourself, oh, that giant, he too has an internal life and is in love with her and he deserves um, to be able to take his shot at love and at romance. Um, what Freud will say is, yeah, what you're dreaming about is um, the fact that she's heterosexual and you're unhappy about it. Um, and um, that dream um, is one in which it would be absurd to say that the giant was someone real and therefore deserved some attention to his inner experience and his subjective life. He's only there for you. 
Um, to say, therefore, that something is an empty dream, in general, is to say it only has allegorical meaning. Milton is reversing that. He's saying the danger of allegory is to think that if you only see, see something from the outside, if your only relation to something is from the outside, that you will think it's only for you. That there's only one being who's subjective, that is you yourself, and everyone else is there for your moral edification or for your entertainment or for the uses you can put, to them, put them to. And the opposite of that, the antipodean opposite of that, is to say, no, even dream figures, even those you encounter in your dreams, might have real subjective experience. And the reason to think that is because Eve is a dream, and she's real. And Adam has dreamt of her, and she turned out to be real. And yet, she's only temporarily real. The truth about Eve is that she's a dream. Because she dies. Because her reality is ephemeral, which is what the reality of dream figures are. It's not that they're unreal because they don't have subjectivity. It's they're unreal because they're mortal. So what he gives you in Calliope is someone who suffers because she can't defend her son. Why can't she defend her son? Because she's a dream. Cancel terms, and what you get is someone who suffers because she's a dream. That's the crucial thing Milton is saying. She suffers because she's a dream, because she's ephemeral, because she cannot do immortal things and make things stick. She suffers because she's like us, earthborn. Urania is heavenly, and she can defend me, but I'm like Orpheus, mortal. If Calliope is a dream, so is Orpheus. But it's not that Calliope can't defend her son, but it doesn't matter because he doesn't really exist. It's he does exist. He's killed. He's murdered by the barbarous route that tear him up. And she can't defend him because she, too, is not immortal. So, the, so what Milton is doing now is not making an opposition between dream and reality in the standard sense. We're now awake, so we're real. But tonight you'll dream about this class, but it'll only be the dream me that you're so happy to see as you sleep. No, the distinction is between those who live in dreams, which includes all mortal people. We're all dreams. We are all the dreams of life, and those who are immortal, who can have no idea what the experience of being a dream is, of being someone in a dream is, of being an empty dream is. But, but Eve and Milton's wife, probably Catherine, but there's some debate, Eve and Milton's wife are both dreams, and they both suffer, and they both die. That's why she's his latest Basil Saint. She died. She comes to him in a dream, but then she's gone again. She flees. Eve dies. Calliope cannot defend her son. That's what it means to be mortal. 
is to be an empty dream. And that's what we'll talk about tomorrow.